The story of Abraham and his son Isaac is one of the most shocking and one of the most extraordinary stories that we have, so we really can't go past it without paying some attention to it. The whole purpose of Abraham's life was governed by one big idea. And the big idea was, as the text says before our reading, God chose him. I will make you a a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. You'll be the father of many nations. Well, we're usually quite wary of people whose lives are governed by one big idea. There's something sort of fanatical about them. They're obsessed and obsessive. Often, other things and other people get sacrificed to the great idea. Abraham and Sarah have been married for a very long time and have been childless. So the one big idea drives Abraham to take matters into his own hand and he takes one of his his Egyptian slaves and there's no other way to put it other than that he rapes her because she's a slave, she has no power of her own and she produces a son. Abraham has taken matters into his own hand but then of course Sarah gets pregnant and Abraham has a problem because Here he has a son by one of his slaves. So he does what anyone would do whose life is governed by the one great idea, sacrifice everything that is necessary in order to achieve that great idea and see it come to fruition. He drives drives Hagar and her son Ishmael out into the desert with a skin full of water and a little bag of bread. This is a horrible story. There is no other way of of saying that. It is terrible. Do we dismiss the story as kind of crazy? I mean, we could have, I could have preached on the Matthew text. That's quite lovely. It's all about welcoming. What do we do with the story? Do we try and make it out? Well, God is not really that bad in this story because God is testing Abraham. He didn't really want Abraham to kill Isaac. We know, because we know the end of the story, that God wouldn't want Abraham to go through with it. Or we can say, well, this is a moral story that you sometimes have to give up the things you love. But it's really very much about child abuse, isn't it? It's a terrible story. We've got to see it in a a completely different way. Well, the first thing to remember is, of course, this is one of the most ancient stories we'll ever hear. It goes way back into the past of the Bronze Age. It was likely first told well before Stonehenge was being built. We're talking about very, very ancient story that have been told over and over again before we get it in the received version that's written down. And there are other different versions of it floating around. There's... uh, an Islamic version of this story which is quite different in which um, Ishmael becomes the one who is about to be sacrificed and saved. There's all kinds of ways into it. But it makes sense in an ancient world that the gods had to be placated. 
And it turned out that the way you placated God was to give up something of such significance to you that it would wake the gods up and make sure the gods provided the rain at the right time and not at the wrong time, the sun at the right time and not at the wrong time until the harvest came in. And what more precious, given the need to keep the family and the clan going, than a son? The son, of course, was your pension scheme. Didn't have superannuation. That was the pension scheme. If you brought up a good, honest son, that son would keep you in the way that you hope to be kept all through your old age. The continuation of the family was a kind of shot at immortality. We would continue on, our family name would continue. And we're not far off that today. We all have people that we know who are the last of their line. And there's somewhat a sense of sadness and maybe even a bit of guilt that it's stopping that family name and that way of being the family is stopping with me. And who best to make a human sacrifice to placate the gods than the patriarch of the family, the one charged with the responsibility of keeping the clan together and helping it move forward? That's my job. That's what I've got to do. And if it means sacrificing my son, that's what's required. Of course, we, we think human sacrifice is barbaric. We, we, we're not interested in that at all. Except, of course, so much of the wealth of our nation is built on the back of slavery. It's how we were able to afford to send convicts across the other side of the world in the British Empire. Only 150 years ago did we make a law that made it illegal to send people under 10 years of age down the mines and into the factories. 150 years ago. We're not far off understanding sacrifice. And in both those age, uh, situations, when we abolish slavery and when we abolish child labour, there was all sorts of arguments. How are we going to run the economy? If this is central to the economy. If we don't have small children with small hands to go in and feed the bobbins into the machines in Manchester and the rest of the early industrial revolution, these machines will grind to a halt and the economy will fall apart. We've sacrificed asylum seekers to our agenda. It's not that long ago that Kevin Rudd decided no one who came here by boat would ever set foot on Australian soil. And now we're spending $350 million a year to keep Manus Island open, one of the Rudd scheme. And there's no one in it. That's costing us $350 million every year to run an empty camp. All because these things have to be, somebody has to be sacrificed because the economy, the safety of the nation. Last month, the RBA, the Reserve Bank of Australia, in a speech, the Deputy Governor said, we have to have higher unemployment in order to stop inflation. Higher unemployment means people you know and love being thrown out of work because, well, look, we just have to make sacrifices. Of course, the we who have to make sacrifices are the ones that are talking about it, but the people who do the sacrificing are not us. At least, it's not the RBA governor. Well, it might be the new RBA. This RBA governor might be gone soon, but it, that's just the way. So we're not that far away, are we, from the story of Abraham and Isaac. 
before we sort of think of them as sort of barbaric um, ancients. But what happens? Abraham reaches out his hand, takes the knife to kill his son, and both Abraham and Isaac seem to do as they're told because that's what's required, because it's their duty, because it's their responsibility. There's an extraordinary poem by Wilfred Owen, one of the great World War I poets, who wrote some beautiful poetry during the war, extraordinarily powerful, and died a week before the armistice was signed. He was killed in the trenches in Flanders. And in that story, in the poem of the old man, and the parable of the old man and the young, Abraham raises up the knife and instead of listening to the voice of God, he kills Isaac. And as the poem finishes, but the old man would not do so, but he slew his son and half the seed of Europe, one by one. That's not that long ago. But everything changes in the Isaac and Abraham story because Abraham hears a different voice. Do not lay your hand on the boy, the voice says. He hears a story about life, not death. He hears the call to who he is differently. He was focused on him being the called one. That's why he needed to manipulate Hagar, because nothing was happening. I mean, look at the time. Sarah's not been pregnant. We've been married. for. We've got to get on with this. He heard the call as about him, rather than the call as about who he was to be be the father of, the father of many nations. He take, took matters into his own hands because the ends always justify the means because the ends of this great idea that governed his life. And if God needs him to kill, well then that's what he'll do. But if he'd focused on the call, not of who he was, but of where he was to go, what he was to be, who he was to be, to be the father of many nations... The father is the one who welcomes, the patriarch. Now, you know, we are not in as much of patriarchal society, so we would do, think about it differently. But, but in that situation, the father's job was to welcome and to bring everyone in. This is what Jesus is saying. It's the last few verses of a whole chapter where Jesus is telling the disciples what to do and how to do their work. And he finishes by saying, welcome, 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 over and over again. That's the purpose of it. And how do you do it? Well simple cup of cold water will do. That's the beginning of it. You don't need a theological degree. You don't need uh, an enormous economy. You don't need a whole... You just need to do the simple, ordinary things. It's a simple cup of cold water. Once Abraham heard this other voice, the voice of life, the voice that said, this is not about you showing how religious you are. Do you, you can imagine God saying, do you really think when I gave you the voice, when you heard the, my voice that said, kill yourself, do you really think that was what I wanted you to do? Are you really so enamoured with being a good, religious, uptight, upright person, maybe uptight too, but an upright person, that you're willing to damage life, the life that God brought into the world in every moment, that you're willing to do that? in order to remain the upright, righteous patriarch of the world, the 
but father of many nations? Or are you willing to listen to life, to be the welcomer, the welcoming one? At the beginning of another war, in 1939, W.H. Auden, the British poet who escaped to America during the war, said in one of his poems, the poem he wrote when he, when he heard the declaration of war, he was sitting in a pub, he heard that war had been declared, and he wrote this line in a, in a long, desperately sad poem. Because, you know, he'd remembered the First World War, he remembered what we'd done, that we'd killed the, the, every, the seed of Europe one by one. And he said in his poem, we must love one another or die. We must love one another or die.